Usually in elections, candidates search for voters. Pakistan is the only place in the world where voters are searching for candidates. Hello and welcome to the Security Distillery Podcast. Today we have a special episode on the Pakistani election. We are very fortunate at the IMSS cohort to have a lot of colleagues from a lot of different places. And with this year of elections, we'll try to draw upon their expertise of their home countries to gain insight on these upcoming elections. And today, we're so fortunate to have Fatima with us. Thank you. And Fatima, before you joined IMSS, you have had a quite extensive professional career. Yes, I have. This is my second master's. Um, I've worked uh, with uh, two different foreign governments while in Pakistan. I worked with the FCDO. Uh, during the last election, I was an election watcher for them and uh, with uh, the State Department as well. So you do know quite a lot about your country and especially terrorism and the political state in Pakistan. Exactly. We're recording this on the 6th of February and with the election at the 8th of February. I would like to first and foremost hear how do you think the uh, Shabazz uh, Sharif uh, government has fared, that is the outgoing government? So uh, interesting to point out. So Shabazz Sharif was the last elected government. Um, He came into power after or amidst, you could call it, what's now called the 2022 Pakistani political crises (laughs) on Wikipedia. Uh, but basically, elected Prime Minister Imran Khan of the PTI was removed in a vote of no confidence, the reasons for which are a mixture of bad governance um, as well as serious political engineering. Um, but basically, Shabazz Sharif put together a coalition government with a few of the other parties that were in opposition at the time, like the PPP. Um, and this was in April. The tenure of that parliament session was supposed to end in August. Um, after which, constitutionally, uh, what is supposed to happen is that a caretaker government, so a completely non-elected government, comes into power, and their sole job is to take a minimum of 60 days and a maximum of 90 days to ensure a smooth, uh, non-partisan election takes place and that there's a smooth transition of power. If you do the math, the longest this caretaker government should have been in power by any stretch of the imagination uh, is October or November of 2022. We are now in February 2024, and even though elections are days away, there are still um, supposedly resolutions uh, in the Senate proposing a further delay in the elections. So what kind of people are in this caretaker government? Those that are close with the army, or what is colloquially known in Pakistan as the establishment, uh, tend to get roles in the caretaker setup. They're known to be impartial. They'll switch sides. They, they're either people that have been in every party at some point or no parties. They're just specialists. Like the finance minister is going to be some banker and the health minister is going to be someone that's run a hospital for a long time, etc., and things like that. Uh, but basically, they're usually got military-backed. Considering this caretaker setup has been around for as long as it has, uh, without any repercussions. Uh, nobody's challenged it in the courts. Nobody's said anything. And it's well overstated. It's constitutional. Welcome. It's largely being seen as a front, a political front for the army. The army doesn't want to let go of power right now. Uh, they doing this, they're doing this under the pretext of stabilizing the country. 
from the aforementioned crises. <laughs> but um, there's been a lot of blowback, even from the PMLN and the PPP, who now want their like elections need to happen. So I guess it's fair to say that the military in Pakistan has quite a lot of sway over its politics. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The people, so the, exactly, the, the army is contextually, historically very, very influential. We have had three, at least three, like uh, big military coups, if not more. We've had them some within years of our, of Pakistan's inception. Uh, the last one was the Musharraf era coup. Before that, we had Zia. Before that, we had Ayub. There was back-to-back. The last two governments were the first ever consecutive democratic transitions of power that the country had ever had. And also, even though so the, the government's completed, like we had elections at the right time, to date, not a single Pakistani prime minister has lasted a full five years. So it's a very unstable, um, unstable environment. And the current sort of elongated stretch of caretaker government uh, has happened because the army wants to completely delegitimize one political party from running in the election. So they've taken time to systemically prosecute and sort of neuter one political party's ability to run for the elections. And am I right in saying that that is the Pakistan Tariq E Insaf Party, also known as a Imran Khan's party? MRUE in English we can say PTI, and if you translate Tariq Insaf, it's the Justice Party, Justice Movement. Yeah. Um, so what happened with Imran Khan? <laughs> Everyone uh, that disliked or didn't support Imran Khan uh, or his politics always hurled that he was the military establishment's puppet during his tenure that the army and his relationship was poisoning Pakistan's democracy and that his popularity and as such his winning of the 2018 elections was like overstated and only happened due to his relationship uh, with the military. Um, but by April 2022, so 2018, he was elected, but April 2022, it was clear that he and the military are no longer on the same page. But basically very soon after coming in uh, to power, The first thing Imran Khan said, one of the first things, was he wanted to make an alternative Muslim bloc. He wanted to say that why does the Arab world hold all of the power within the Muslim world? And he proposed something with Turkey and Malaysia. The Saudis didn't like that very much. Um, and our military is very indebted to the Saudis. Uh, there was a really big blowback. This Clearly, this alt block never took off the ground because Imran Khan was threatened almost instantly. <laughs> uh, the Our chief of army staff at the time had to make three back-to-back -back trips to, the, to Saudi Arabia to try and smooth things over. It did get better, but it took a few years. Uh, on top of that, in, I want to say the summer, so early summer, so June of 2021, uh, Imran Khan was uh, interviewed by HBO the American home box office. Um, and uh, the interviewer asked him if he would allow the U.S. to uh, bases or sort of assistance on Pakistani territory to launch counterterrorism initiatives in Afghanistan. And he said his now famous words, absolutely not. Today, 
Every car when you're driving on the road in Islamabad has an absolutely not sticker emblazoned on it. People went wild. They loved this idea because, uh, particularly because of drone warfare and how much Pakistan had suffered under that in the past. So somebody standing up to the Americans, even at an HBO almost comedic interview, was just loved by the Pakistani public. Obviously not loved so much uh, by the Americans. And then he added salt to that wound because when the U.S. withdrawal to Afghanistan actually happened, uh, he came out on TV and said, the Afghans have broken the shackles of slavery. You know, he was making such moves. He was meddling in army internal affairs, trying to decide who becomes the next chief of army staff. What people call hybrid government that Pakistan had was falling apart. The military and Imran Khan were no longer seeing eye to eye. And some political engineering had to take place to take him out. And that was when the PDM or the Pakistan Democratic Movement formed? Yes, exactly. Um, what they did was um, the the opposition parties all got together. And Imran Khan had a majority, but it wasn't an outright majority. It was done through an alliance. So these guys broke the alliance, basically, held a vote of no confidence, and khalas, out went Imran Khan. There was massive rioting that day, that evening. And rioting the kind of which Pakistan has not seen before because um, core commanders' residences were attacked while they were still in them. Um, while the army did not respond with physical force at the time of the riots, it declared uh, the rioting as terrorist incidents after they were done and put the full weight of the army in the prosecution of those presents. Um, and thus began the political prosecution of, or persecution, both, of PTI and Imran Khan in Pakistan. In the last couple of weeks, Imran Khan has received over 20 years in jail, banned from running for the current or the next elections, millions of rupees in fines, and has even had his marriage declared null, void, and illegal. Um, his uh, party has been decimated with its stalwarts arrested and then forcefully disappeared until they came out and renounced PTI. And if they didn't, they were rearrested. And uh, the party has lost its election symbol. And in a country where we uh, have a very high illiteracy rate, uh, this is a big deal. Um, and not being given the symbol is also just sort of to mentally break them. You're not a unit. You're not allowed to be one uh, unit. Uh, on top of that, I think there have been at least three PTI candidates who have been attacked and or killed uh, during campaigning and candidates who apply for like nomination papers for the election to run from the PTI platform have to go through so many hurdles. If you write that you're appearing from the PTI candidate, the amount of loopholes that, or not loopholes, hurdles that they make you jump are so high. Uh, but it's a targeted campaign to disenfranchise PTI and take their votes. But per the last public polls taken about a week ago, PTI still had um, the least optimistic figure is 60% of, of the popularity. Others will go up to 80, but like the, the lowest figure across any of the polls that you look at is 60%. And people don't even, even though voters are struggling to figure out who they have to vote for, 
voters are still trying to figure out because um, people's if you're living in a constituency where you're more likely to vote for PTI, you're getting text messages telling you that your constituency's moved. And it's two days before the election, and you live in Islamabad, and you get a message to say, now you have to vote in a village four hours away. How are you going to make arrangements to go vote? Because they're just trying to, to mess with people. Um, the other day I was speaking to someone uh, who said, usually in elections, candidates search for voters. Pakistan is the only place in the world where voters are searching for candidates. <laughs> so we've talked about this quote in our pre-meeting, and it's a really great quote. I really like it. Um, but it also really goes to show how little credibility the actual election has. Has, yeah, exactly. Um, so the military's involvement in our politics has been continuous, and it's been known as well. But what's different this time is um, Imran Khan's not backing away from the fight. Nawaz Sharif, for example went into self-exile. Benazir Bhutto before him chose to go into self-exile before she was assassinated when she came back. Not, uh, Imran Khan is choosing to fight. He's continuously talking. He's got an amazing digital team. They're doing continuous campaigning online. You know, depending on who you speak, people will argue that, you know, these same tactics have been used against other parties. PTI is not unique. But of course, if you speak to PTI, they'll say that this level of repression, I mean, declaring a marriage null and void, not only is that just a personal attack, it sets women's rights back years. Um, there's a court case and they're sitting and they're discussing Imran Khan's wife's menstruation cycles. I'm, it just doesn't, it sets women's rights back just to discredit him. So some people would argue that that's worse than before. But it's part of a trend. But it's a trend that he's exposing. People used to be too scared to speak up against the military. Now it's the number one hashtag every single day. So I think if there's anything that I think that's different about this election, it's this element of the exposure of the military involvement and the extent of it. So how do you think that will impact the election or, or influence the, the proceedings of the election? These elections are going to be volatile. Mm-hmm. Equal parts, because um, uh, since the Afghan Taliban have come back into power, the TTP are very active in the country again. We've got ISIS active, we've got Baloch separatists active, and there has been a distinct spike in uh, violence, uh, political violence, since the elections have been announced to begin with. Um, but also, um, if the results are really far off from what the people expect. There will be a lot of like sort of riots um, are expected as well. And as a result of that, do you think we'll see any form of violence or terrorism at the polling station at this election? Um, so this is where like a balance need to be struck. Um, historically, um, the elections have been violent. The TTP um, come out They're, they openly are anti-democratic. They don't believe in democracy. Um, neither does ISIS. So they target um, sort of polling stations and stuff. But over the years, not only has the army sort of dealt with the threat quite a bit, um, the TTP is also trying really hard to win sort of a hearts and minds game. Uh, there's also talks of mainstreaming the, the TTP, so then they would have to get involved. So the threat is there, but it's not as bad um, as it has been in the past. But there's always been election-related violence. We also have a lot of far-right um, parties. And I say f I think it's, it's better to classify them as far-right Islamic 
parties. Um, the Bareilly sector have the TLP, which is the Tehrik el Lebek of Pakistan, um, who have in the past blockaded Islamabad all the way in, yelling obscenities uh, and uh, stating that they will not uh, open the blockade until the French ambassador has been expelled and a woman on death row for blasphemy is beheaded. Um, so, and they are currently, I think, the fifth largest, uh, the fifth most popular party in Pakistan. So when you have sort of these kinds of elements in your everyday politics, it's a very volatile situation. I guess there's no secret that the next uh, Pakistani prime minister will, with a very high uh, probability, be Nawaz Sharif. Could you maybe talk a bit about him and his uh, political career? Yes. He's the, um, what the newspapers like to call the supremo of the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz. The party's named after him, so it makes sense. He is Shabaz Sharif's brother, who I mentioned earlier, and Maryam Nawaz's father. Um, so the, these are all the leaders of the PMLN. So the PMLN is a bit of a family affair, as you can see. Yeah, so Nawaz Sharif's younger brother, Shabaz Sharif, was the prime minister before. Yeah, and I'll explain why. If you, yeah, the PMLN was in government in 2013 election. As you mentioned, he's been around for a while, but his foray into politics, again, has military roots. He was around during the Zia dictatorship. He was propped up by the Zia al-Haq regime, and he was in government. A couple of his second stint in government resulted in a military coup. So he starts off with the military, is very buddy-buddy, but in the end gets deposed, gets into a coup and the military takes over from him. And I guess we would see that again later in the Pakistani politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So can you tell a little bit about what happened at the Navashuri's third term and why he didn't last? The Panama Papers came out. Um, and, I mean, a lot of, well, they, the Panama Papers exposed a lot of very corrupt people There weren't a lot of countries where they led to such decisive action as they did in Pakistan. Uh, the Panama Papers opened a Pandora's box of uh, sort of sentences and court cases for Nawaz Sharif. One of the ones that came up, one of the references that came up that re ended up removing him from the prime ministership was one that contended that due to the Panama Papers that Nawaz Sharif did not meet the constitutional requirement of the prime minister needing to be truthful and trustworthy. It's a, it's a constitutional requirement. <laughs> That sounds very easily definable. Yeah, exactly. So he was declared by the courts as ineligible for political office for life. He, of course, cited some health issues left for London, despite being convicted in some cases, despite still needing to appear in others. And all those cases just kept piling up against him in absentia. And his brother and daughter were left in Pakistan to continue the political fight and rebuild their relationship with the army. Which, to their credit, I think they managed to do quite successfully, but it's now 2022. All of those cases have been forgiven and forgotten. Um, the Supreme Court, or one of the courts, passed a new law that says that, you know, if you've been disqualified for running from office, the disqualification only lasts five years. We can't disqualify anyone for life. So his previous lifetime disqualification has also just melted away. He's uh, He received a hero's welcome. In fact, when he came, there was a, a syrup, 
serendipitous um, sort of moment uh, of him speaking on stage and a dove flies out of nowhere and perches on his hand and everyone's like, oh, the harbinger of peace and joy and everything good that's going to come to Pakistan. Um, and I mean, um, it lets you know that all of these big convictions, everything that we're seeing play out with Imran Khan is not the be-all and end-all of the PTI. There will be more political engineering, more political maneuvering. Uh, we can, we'll see where it ends up. But one thing Imran Khan is not willing to do, which you can see that PMLN has done, is negotiate. We don't know what the PMLN has negotiated. We don't know how. And I think that's what worries people. Um, but Imran Khan hasn't negotiated so far. But we still expect Nawaz Sharif to uh, emerge victorious on Friday, right? I think the army wouldn't let him walk away with a clean sweep. I think they're going to make him need to create an alliance. There's a, a popular saying in Pakistan, uh, I'm going to be translating it from the, the Urdu, and it says, uh, people say, you know, the army can turn 20 to 35, but they can't turn 20 into 50. So if you need like 10, 15% more votes, they can do the, the ballot box stuffing and they can do the pre-poll rigging um, and things like that. But if there is a massive voter turnout, if, you know, if there is a real representation of what's going on, the 60% that we have for Imran Khan, that can't turn into 30, you know? <laughs> that, that, that's going to be difficult for the army to do which is why they've been trying so hard to stop it from reaching that point. So if we expect uh, Nawaz Sharif to win the election, can you maybe talk a bit about how his politics towards Afghanistan might look? Um, Afghanistan will be tougher. Um, the Imran Khan has a soft spot for the Afghans, <laughs> particularly of the Afghan Taliban, uh, which is not the nicest uh, Thing to <laughs> not the best way to approach things, but the PMLN I, I think um, is gonna just let the army do what they want to do in Afghanistan. And what does the army want to do? Um, I mean, uh, I, I'm looking into a crystal ball here, but that is a mixture of um, sort of firm-handedness on sort of uh, border issues a firm-handed approach on sort of uh, TTP hideouts and ISIS hideouts and sort of things like that, but also very flexible when it comes to trade, uh, wanting to keep um, sort of secret lines of communication over open, having more direct military to Taliban and ISI to Taliban relationships than the foreign office to the Taliban relationship. But I do think uh, what the PMLN is known for is a softer approach with India. Okay, so a softer approach in, in what sense? Can you elaborate on that? Nawaz Sharif was actually there at Modi's inauguration. He was invited, he went. Um, and while, of course, Muslim na uh, Hindu nationalism uh, and what's happening right now in, in India on that front, the Babri Masjid, all of that, no nonsense. But when it comes to trade... When it comes to infrastructural routes, you will see uh, the PMLN want to um, sort of start talking. Negotiations will begin. But I see that happening 
more with the PMLN government because um, they have a lot of ties to India. They're sort of, um, the they have um, religious sort of shrines that they like to visit in India often. Uh, there's been lots of reports of secret conversations over Kashmir taking place whenever the PMLN is in, is in government. Um, so um, the India relationship, I think, might improve. So you'll see maybe some movement there. You might see some confidence-building measures on Kashmir startup. And if not Kashmir, then just people-to-people ties will start maybe. That's somewhat reassuring. Uh, on, on that positive note, I think we'll end it for today. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And giving us a, a good and broad understanding of the Pakistani political situation as of uh, 2024 and a, a good rundown of the upcoming election. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening to today's episode. It is our intention to continue making these elections special with our colleagues throughout this year of elections. In order not to miss out on any future episodes, hit the subscribe button. And as a new feature, the Security Distillery podcast is now available on all podcasting apps. We would equally appreciate if you could leave us a review. If there's anything you would like to point out, feel free to contact us at our email, which you can find in the description of this episode. See you soon for the next episode of the Security Distillery podcast.